Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him And welcome to episode 4-446 of the Run Run Live podcast. And here we are at the start of a new year. How about that, huh? 2021. Happy New Year. Yeah. So today we have a chat with Nick Butter. Butter. (laughs) That I recorded a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Nick has recently run a marathon in every country in the world. So I'm guessing you're going to hear him making the rounds on the various podcasts. And I'm always a little hesitant to interview folks that come off on the surface as maybe a bit self-promotional, right? And we have a lot of that in running. Running, actually, the history of running is people you know, claiming to do big things and then maybe or maybe not doing it. But as you will hear in this interview, Nick... He's uh, he's a great guy. You know, once two runners start talking, it's fun, right? He's a thoughtful, honest, regular Joe runner. And it's another one of these stories that's great for the new year, right? Another, hey, let's chuck everything and do something big kind of story. So I'm looking out the window of my home office as I write this, and it's just about freezing. And there is a covering of icy snow on the ground. Yesterday, we got one of those slush storms where sort of a warm front rolls through with the precipitation and uh, we get the snow and the rain at the same time. And I went out with Ollie for a couple hours in the slush in the trails and it was kind of fun. I told you last time about how Ollie likes to ambush me in the woods, right? And he'll come running directly at me, hit the brakes, snap and growl and take off growling with a stick in his mouth. And I've managed to avoid getting bitten the last couple of weeks, you know, since the last time we talked. Although he did spear me from behind with a pine tree one day this week, right? (laughs) That hurt. Yesterday, we're out running in the slush, and he comes tearing down the trail straight at me, right? Throws on the brakes. But because there's two inches of slush, he can't get any traction. He slides straight through me like a ball through a set of bowling pins. And I went down on top of him and got all covered with slush. I know it sounds funny now, but I was pretty mad at the time. But uh, as I'm looking out my window here and on my run today, uh, all the slush is frozen. So it's a little dicey out on the trails. (laughs) So it's a little icy. So I've started training a wee bit. 
My plan is to be in 50-mile shape for the end of April. Uh, today capped a pretty good, pretty good week for me. It's Sunday. I ran a half marathon on the roads with the club last Sunday, seven-ish miles in the trail Tuesday, eight-ish in the trails on Wednesday, and then 10 by 60-second hill repeats on Friday, and then 10-ish slushy miles yesterday, and I'll get an, and I got another seven-ish miles in the trails today. So, you know, that's mid-40 miles for seven days if I go uh, Sunday to Saturday, and over 50 for eight days if I go Sunday to Sunday, which is a, that's a pretty good volume for me. In section one, we'll talk about how to build a spring training plan. In section two, I'll give you one of the finished episodes of my new Apocalypse podcast, so you can hear what I've been putting my energy into over the last few weeks during the holidays. And I am not going to talk about New Year's resolutions or the best of 2020 or any of that stuff, any of that tripe, any of those tropes. Tripe and trope. I wonder if those are related. I don't know. But I will talk a little bit about attitude in the outro, a little bit about 2020, 2021 um, attitude. And I, cause I think 2021 is going to be a interesting year after all of us being artificially tamped down for 2020, 2021 should be a barn burner. And I would counsel you to be prepared, be prepared, be prepared to take these, these slow times around the holidays to plan and reflect and prepare because everything that happens is an opportunity and these failures and these low points are opportunities as well as the successes they all teach us something if we're willing to learn and I've often quoted Teddy Roosevelt's uh, man in the arena speech you all have heard this I'm not gonna read you Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena speech you're welcome <laughs> you've heard it though it's famous Teddy Roosevelt he was a he was a real character Teddy Roosevelt, he's on Mount Rushmore with Lincoln, Washington, and Jefferson, which is a bit strange if you think about it. What is this dude from the early 1900s doing up on the mountain with the founders of the country and the great emancipator? Right? This little squirrely guy with the squeaky voice. And we know he had a squeaky voice because this was around the time that audio recording started to exist. So you could say Teddy was the first podcasters. Well, you know how Teddy got up on that mountain? And you know how he got to be president? Well, he was such a pain in the ass that they made him vice president to get him out of the way. So basically, they buried him in a do-nothing job so he couldn't cause any trouble. And then an anarchist put a bullet in McKinley, and the rest, my friends, is history. So you have to be ready for your moments. 2021 could be your moment. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Start your engines. Training for a spring event. So by the time you listen to this, we will be turning the corner on 2020 into 2021. It might have been hard to imagine a couple of weeks ago, but it looks like we might have events to train for this year. 
Everyone is posting their 2020 mileage numbers. Good for you if you managed to get done what you wanted to get done. 2021 is a new season to try new things. Chances are you'll be training for something, maybe a real spring event, or maybe some self-created personal challenge. Either way, you're going to want to train in such a way to support that effort. So let's talk about some practical considerations for how to set up a training plan and get ready. So first, you know, what's your starting point? How much fitness do you have right now? I like to keep a low boil of fitness during these December weeks. It's an off-season for me, so I don't do any real racing or real training, but I still work out five to seven days a week just to stay fit and healthy. I think the real difference is I don't do a lot of quality work and I don't do a lot of volume. I'm starting at a base of about 30 easy miles a week. I've got a good engine. I've got a lot of experience. I can ramp up the miles pretty quickly when I want to. That being said, I'm also getting older and I need to be cautious of how much volume and quality I load in and how quickly. Right? So that's your first question when you're setting up your plan. Where are you starting from? Do you have a good base on a scale of 1 to 10? With 10 being the best race-ready shape you've ever been in? Right? Where are you? I'm probably a 6. <laughs> yeah, somewhere around there to start my spring campaign. But I'm healthy. Where are you? If you're a 5 or less, then you should probably start with base building before you lay on volume and quality. And base building is very simple. It's a bunch of longer, slower runs. Zone 2 runs. Don't know what zone 2 is. Look it up. Next, you want to think about what's the event. Now, it sounds obvious, but you need to match your training to your event. Training campaigns have this basically the same elements, all training campaigns, no matter what you're training for. But the emphasis will shift depending on the event that you've targeted. So your plan is going to have volume and quality workouts, whether you're training for 5K or 50K, but the mix is going to shift more towards volume for the longer distances, you know, anything longer than marathon. Quality workouts are, you know, speed work, tempo, hill work, anything else, high intensity. For the, for the longer efforts, you might have fewer quality workouts, but you're still going to have some especially race-specific type workouts. So you have to figure out how you're going to shift that mix for your event. And assuming you already have the base, the task is simply how much and what type of quality to layer on and how much volume. Uh, you also have to decide how much time and effort you can commit or handle. Can you run seven days a week? Okay, great. Can you run seven days a week when two of those days are hard tempo runs and one of them is a multi-hour long run. I can't do that anymore. I'm going to have maybe two tempo runs in a week and maybe get out five days a week at my peak. And it's okay to do fewer days of running. You compensate by loading in cross-training and strength work on the off days. How many quality workouts do you want to put into your weeks? Maximum is typically two. You can't do more than two really hard workouts a week and still recover. One is fine. One's good, especially if you're not particularly experienced at structured training. One is great. 
And what do I mean by quality again? It's different forms of tempo, speed work, uh, fast finish long runs, surge runs, step up runs, fart legs, hill repeats, all that stuff. And the purpose of these is to get you comfortable with running at race level effort. And you need this to be able to race well and with confidence to be able to close the race. So what's your longest long run going to be? Huh? Have you thought about that? For a shorter race, like a 5K or a 10K, you know, your long run's going to be in the 10-mile, maybe, distance, right? But for a marathon, you're going to want to get that up over 20 miles at least once in training just to get that confidence of getting past the wall. And if you're targeting an ultra-distance event, you're going to want to get up over 30 miles and do several back-to-back long runs to have that confidence of running on tired legs, or what the ultra-runners call running when it sucks. Now you'll have sort of an idea of what you need to layer in and how much you can handle, right? So start with your event and back-schedule a two-week taper. So (laughs) you take two weeks to recover, going into the event. The week before you start your your uh, taper is going to be your biggest week. So back schedule two weeks, that's your biggest week ending right there. Now drop your longest run, your biggest week, longest long run right there. And drop your highest volume week right there. And drop your biggest tempo run right in there somewhere. Then work backwards from there in two or three week waves to where you are today. And that will get you a training plan. I used to do three-week waves when I was younger. And a three-week wave is easy, medium, hard. So I don't do that anymore. I do two-week waves now, which is basically easy, hard, or easy, medium. Or, you know, easy, not as easy. <laughs> so I don't recover as fast as I used to. But but specifically what you don't want to do is you don't want a linear plan. You don't want it to go one, two, three, four, five, etc. That's linear. You want it to skip around a little bit in waves like two, three, four, three, five, six. That's a three week wave, right? Let me say that again. Two, three, four, three, five, six, right? So you're stepping back a little bit, but then each wave is cresting progressively higher as you work through the plan. And remember, there's shades of gray in all this. Coaches have been trying to optimize training plans forever. And the thing to remember is that any structured training plan is going to produce results that far exceed a non-structured training schedule. A good wave-based plan with quality and volume balanced for your event will produce far better results than a linear plan you stole off the internet. So what are some of the mistakes that people make when creating a plan? Well, big one is trying to do too much. That's my problem. (laughs) And this is why I like having a coach, because he prevents me from doing too much. Um, None of your training matters if you don't make it to the starting line of your event, right? Doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in if you can't run. So all of us are biased to load too much volume and quality into our plans. It's easy to schedule a workout when you're looking at it from two months from now. We all fall victim to that more is better assumption. And honestly, unless you're getting paid to train, you're going to be making trade-offs. I wish I could do yoga every day. I can't. I don't have time for it. 
You have to pick your battles and make the most of the time you have by not wasting energy in frivolous workouts or loading too much into your plans. So don't try to stick every workout type you've ever heard of into the plan. And I see this in a lot of those online plans. Hill workouts, ladder workouts on the track, barefoot prancing in the grass, etc., etc. Cut it out. It's not performance art. Keep it simple. (laughs) The less you have to think about, the more likely you'll do it or be able to do it. And another mistake is to avoid the stuff around the sides, right? The strength training, the stretching, the conditioning. If you can only focus on one thing in your cross training, make it your core. Keep it simple. Push-ups, crunches, leg lifts, planks, etc. You know, a strong core will help you maintain form and help you go the distance. So don't forget your core. And of course, the final mistake to uh, that people make is they ignore their diet. <laughs> I'm living proof that you can't outrun a bad diet. You're making an investment in your workout. Support that investment by giving your machine the food it needs. So as we ease into a new year, 2021, I'm targeting something in the 50-mile distance for the spring. So this means a lot of long runs on tired legs. But I like that work, and it lets me take Ollie out in the woods for hours, and I find it quite peaceful and rewarding. What are you going to train for in 2021? And now for today's featured interview. So, Nick Butters, give us the introduction, who you are and and what you do. So, I run a bit. I'm a British endurance athlete and an adventurer, I suppose. That's the the easiest way to class me. I have recently just set the world record, become the first person to run a marathon in every country in the world. I am nearing 50,000 miles, all-time running. And as of a couple of days ago, just finished my 800th marathon. And I think I'm on something like 90 ultras. So I like running, basically. That's the whole story. <laughs> you know, also through this process, you've kind of turned it into your lifestyle, right? And we were talking about living in the van, yeah. right? And right now you're running the length of Italy. That's right. Yeah. So running the length of Italy, north to south, two goals. We want to run from the very north to the very south and finish on Christmas Eve and have Christmas in Sicily and to run 100 marathons in 100 days. And the trip was all kind of, you touch on the lifestyle thing, it's we're living in a van, my girlfriend Nikki and our, our puppy Poppy, who's just turned one. We live in a, a converted Mercedes van and we live on the road doing expeditions and adventures and travels, whether that be writing about them, vlogging about them. We've got a documentary coming out next year. My book's just released from my recent trip. And so it's just a great way of combining all of my loves, photography, travel, obviously running, meeting people, experiencing different places and cultures. And like we are now, we're down a couple of days north of uh, of Sicily. We're very close to the end of our journey. And we're caught in this huge electric storm right by the coastline, this huge crashing waves. And we've got thunder and lightning over our little skylight above our bed. And that's the lifestyle that I love, but I wasn't always in. I was originally in, in finance, in, in banking, completely the opposite end of the spectrum. And I guess I gave it all up because I had a, I suppose, a little bit of a, a life moment when I realized that you know, there's a lot more precious things in the world than just kind of you know, toying up the coins in your bank balance. Yeah, and I think you describe it in your book as uh, you had a, a sort of an epiphany while talking to a friend who said, hey, you're not going to live forever or something along those lines. 
yeah that's do what yeah, you can. yeah it's it's really it's something that i do a lot of talks in schools and we've got a theater talk now a theater tour next year around the uk and europe and it's something that is the forefront of everything that i'm talking about and doing and kind of pre- inadvertently preaching to everybody this friend that you mentioned is a guy called kevin weber i met him when i was running mds marathon de saab several years ago and he told me that he had terminal prostate cancer and was only going to live for potentially two years. And he told me this with a, a beam on his you know, massive smile on his face and was incredibly happy about life. And I didn't understand this disconnect between why he was you know, saying he was dying and actually he was very, very happy. And it just hit me so strongly that when he said to me, don't wait for a diagnosis, don't wait for something to happen in your world that will just give you the kick you need to to do what you want to do now, as opposed to put it off. We're, human beings are very good at postponing all of our hopes and dreams until it's a, a more convenient time or you know, whether we can afford it or whether it's right for our family. Or And he just said, look, you don't know when life is going to deal you a bad hand. And for him, that bad hand means he's going to die of cancer as what I think the number is one in two of us do now. Mm-hmm. And so we're, I'm just literally live every day with the feeling that I, I hope that I'm doing his words proud and that I can share that message further. Yeah. And that's exactly the same sentiment I get in so many of folks like you, the adventurers who, you know, end yeah. up living in a van, doing yeah. something, <laughs> right? It's an interesting arc for you. I, I think you have to have some sort of seed of that within you, right? And then that person just sort of tips the scales. Absolutely. Yeah. I describe it as like the the Clifford of of adventure and all through my life since birth, I've kind of had people that are kind of pushing me slowly towards that edge of that cliff. And Kev just happened to be that person that just tipped me over the edge. And as I was falling, I realized like what I'd been missing out on. And I've still got really good friends of mine that are in the banking world. And I just eternally wish that I could say something or do something or show them a book or show them a film or show them something that would spark that click and change in their mind. Because we just have so much. I mean, seeing seeing the entire world, but seeing every country and experiencing all these cultures, we in the West, as we call it, the developed, the, the privileged side of the planet, we are so unbelievably fortunate. And we just take everything for granted. You know, we take healthcare, we take our education, we take just simple fact that we can turn on the tap and have water coming out. And so when we take all of that for granted, we're kind of already on the back foot because we're just moseying along through life. And many of us don't realize that we're just we're kind of waiting to die without realizing it. And so my, my kind of objective is to do the opposite of that. Yeah, it's funny you say that because we're incredibly privileged and we're miserable about it most yeah. of the time, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the, the lives of quiet desperation bit. Yeah, so, so true. You talk about that. There's such a strong correlation with people that have everything and that are moaning about the things that don't matter. You hear people talking about how, I don't know, just the random article I read a few days ago about somebody that was unhappy with a jacuzzi they bought and was raging about it and wrote to the papers because it wasn't quite right. And then you look at the communities that I experienced all over the world. You have two million children under the age of five starving to death because they don't have enough food. And I'm guilty of it. I think everybody's guilty of it that has privileges. We're annoyed when we smash our phone screen. We're annoyed when we have to pay our tax or our our, our phone bills that sort of stuff and actually we are so lucky to be in that position and i experienced such enormous welcoming and warmth from so many people around the world that had literally nothing and they were giving me bottles of water that they couldn't afford themselves they were trying to do everything they could selflessly and it's just not something that we experience in our culture as as much as we could do let's get to that because this thing you did to run in a marathon in every country in the world is logistically amazing (laughs) besides everything else you know i know one other guy i think one 
I forget the guy who wrote a book. He was a startup guy from California. He visited every country. But you're the yeah, first this, person I've yeah. I've heard of actually running a marathon in every country. Yeah, exactly. Nobody had done it before. Nobody had even tried it before, got vaguely close. And I was amazed at that, actually, because I understand it now because it's actually far more difficult than you think. Even if you think it's difficult, it's probably much more difficult than that because you have so much to contend with. Even if everything goes right, let's say you don't get sick, you don't have cancelled flights, you don't have pandemics, you don't have lists as long as your arm, just hundreds and hundreds of things. If everything goes right, it just takes one thing to ruin it royally. And we had so many cancelled flights. We had passport logistics. We had political volatility in countries. We had war zones. And then there's the fact that you just need to keep your body sane and straight to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And, and I was running three different marathons in three different countries every week for nearly 96 weeks. And you just get so caught up in that, that journey. But the logistics, I'm quite proud of because of my family, especially my mum and dad, were very close to helping with the original planning and and the execution of the flights and linking up things like that. But I had such a good team and support around me that were working from around the world. And I traveled on my own. And it was just a remarkable experience that has completely and utterly changed my life. So this ended up being 196 countries, 196 marathons. And these were sort of self-supported, right? Were you hooking in official events when you could? Yeah, we, it was a difficult one, actually. When we started the planning, well, the, the planning phase took two years from start to finish, kind of an initial uh, thought process of um, we're going to do this to actually getting to the start line. My first marathon was on January the 6th, 2018 in Canada, Toronto. And, and between that initial thought and that first marathon, many of the things we thought of, one of them was, do we run official races? Do we run our own? Do we organize events? And there was a lot of countries that I thought, you know what, I've done a lot of marathons already. I've done 400 and something by that point. And I thought, I don't want to go and run official marathons. And I also know there's many countries that don't have official marathons. And I don't want to be flying from, I don't know, let's say South America to then go and do one in Singapore and then just endlessly flying long distances. So the the big plus of not doing official races is you actually get to run where you want with people that want to run with you at a pace that you can enjoy and take photos and speak to people along the way. And we had food on on the way and it was every every trip was more or less uh, absolutely self-supported but it kind of became a bit of a, a Pied Piper effect for example in El Salvador I had a thousand people running with me and that wasn't an official race it was just <laughs> it was just this huge effect of people coming in and getting involved and whether it be the, the British embassies the governments within the countries the ministers of sports all over the world or the UN we just had endless support of people going you know what that's really cool we want to get involved and run with you and I've made many many friends out of it oh that's great that you get that local support that's great because the logistics This just sounds exhausting. And I know everybody I talk to who's done this sort of thing, whether it's a marathon in every state or, you know, whatever those things are, it's always the logistics that kills you, right? And like you said, it's such a a fragile setup that anything and everything goes wrong and you have to figure (laughs) out how to wing it. Yeah. It's remarkable, actually, because I'm one for trying to think of everything and getting everything tidy and neat and getting all of the the ducks aligned and make sure that you know what's going to go on and you plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, every letter of the alphabet, trying to think of every eventuality. And with a journey that is 674 days, 23 months, we had a team of about 19 people that were involved in everything from security to visas to health to physios to they weren't with me on the ground, but advising me, all that sort of stuff. And you think, oh, yeah, okay, that's good. And then 
things like, for example, one of the problems which we, we had a list of a document of potential problems that may arise. And one of them that wasn't on the list, which was became a big problem was dogs wild slash stray dog yeah and these dogs were in some parts of south america and especially a lot in in central africa so many stray dogs would cause me problems in the fact that i couldn't run places or i was i got bitten by a dog and in the pacific islands there's actually a couple of islands there that are so overrun with dogs people don't go outside and do any exercise on their feet as in walking or running because it's you just get bitten and so all that sort of stuff we certainly didn't anticipate before we we set off. Yeah, and it's how do you even figure out how many countries there are? Who's holding that master list? Because doesn't that like isn't that a matter of opinion like everything else these days? That's very true, and I suppose the answer is yes. And because whatever list you're looking at, whether it be a list of I don't know the number of cars in the world or otherwise, it's never going to be exactly right because everything's changing all the time, and that's the same for countries. But the general consensus is go with the UN recognized list of countries, and then you look at. It took us about a year to work out the exact number, by the way, with yeah. help from Guinness World Records, the UN, lots of research, speaking to people that have done previous every country records, all that sort of stuff. The number is officially between 193 and 195. Um, you got some and, countries that sort of blink in and out. <laughs> exactly that. And, and some people will say, no, that's definitely not a country. And then some people would say, no, that definitely is. But looking at hundreds of different lists, if you put them all together, you get a definite 193. And then three countries that are potentially and probably. So then we went with the special number, which everybody uses for every country records, which is 196. And then I ended up actually running 211, because there were other questionable ones along the way that we thought, right, well, if we're going to get this record and do it properly, then let's include the really questionable ones as well. (laughs) Are some of these countries like little three acre sovereign patches of land somewhere exactly so you've got well the smallest country is obviously vatican city i did 82 laps of the vatican but then you've got a lot of places out there like taiwan and kosovo that are causing controversy i ran i ran in hong kong and i ran in beijing we know that hong kong is part of china and that's not on the questionable list but to be sure and to future proof any record if things change then we did hong kong and beijing so you can go down the whole list and just carry on and on and on but but, yeah yeah, 196 was the, the special number yeah you have to make a call at some point yeah so you have so many great stories out of this what do you think is your best story what are your top three that's a very good question oh there's so many most of my stories and most of the evocative kind of extreme emotions that i've experienced throughout the trip have involved people You travel around the world and you expect that you're going to experience cultures. But I think most people, when they go traveling, they're expecting to see a place um, and feel a place, which obviously I did. But the actual feelings I experienced were always involved human beings because it's the interaction with them. If you took away every human and just did the same trip, it would be utterly dull. Although you'd see amazing places, you wouldn't experience it alongside all of these strangers that were so welcoming. And to answer that question... A classic example in Guatemala. I mean, there's so many to choose from, but off the top of my head, Guatemala ran around a a small village called Antigua. Lots of cobbled kind of uh, cobbled stone roads with small yurts and uh, and stove uh, wooden stove fires on the streets. uh, You know, kind of smoking fish and sweet corn, all that sort of stuff. And incredibly evocative of of Central America. And I got to my hotel reception in that morning, uh, expecting just to go on a solo run as I often did, and was joined by a group of about 10 people.
people. They'd found me on Facebook somehow and, and just you know, rocked up at the hotel. And it turned out that I'd made lifelong friends with some of these people. And I'm actually going skiing with one of them in January. I've since ran uh, marathons in all of the other continents with a couple of them. And we ran around an erupting volcano that day. Yeah. I visited this fantastic water filtration company that delivers fresh water to 400,000 families in Guatemala. And this was yeah. all in the space of three days. <laughs> and it was just the most remarkable experience of the show of how people are making really great things happen. And then on the other hand, you've got the negative stuff. I was mugged at knife point and gunpoint in Nigeria. Um, I had a driver taking me over the border into Yemen from Oman that was inadvertent. I didn't realize this at the time. He was smuggling drugs and, and counterfeit goods into Yemen. And we were stopped at the border at crazy o'clock in the morning. And this is all in the book, Running the World. And you know, that's an incredibly terrifying moment. But you're in a country that the British government don't have a responsibility to come and get you. You're very, I was thinking that was country 192 out of 196. So I was so close to the end. And these problems, I was thinking I'm going to get locked up forever. And and ultimately, I'm, I'm here to, to tell the tale. But there's so much that happened that whether it was sights, smells or sounds, all that sort of stuff, it's just incredibly immersive. Yeah, it sounds sounds amazing. So you say you got hit by a car at some point. Is that like a real hit by a car or just sort of bumped by a car? No, that was I got bumped by a car many times. Um, I was right because I've been in in those countries where the pedestrians <laughs> yeah. and the cars are basically sharing the same space, and you get bumped a lot. But yeah, yeah, exactly. I had you know I had things like uh, my compression socks burning, where you just get used to the fact that you're literally sardines with cars being so close to you. You know, my my compression socks were burnt through the exhaust pipe of a, a moped once. All that sort of stuff. You know, those environments you're just so close to other vehicles. But this particular, I was knocked over three times by cars but one particular was in chad in africa i was running on a bank of the side of the road and a truck was i was on the wrong side of the road so everybody knows you're supposed to run into the traffic but it doesn't always work out that way especially in africa because roads aren't very clean and tidy and available and i was running with the flow of traffic and this truck went past and the wing mirror smashed my elbow and i, I broke some bones in my elbow which is actually quite Obviously, you get initial shock and then followed by a lot of pain for many weeks. But it was just the shock of could have been my head or had I just stepped out, right. that could have been it. Yeah, I actually saw that once in a relay race where a person's mirror clipped the guy in front of me. It oh, just God. bumped them. It didn't hurt them. But I actually have seen that in real life. Yeah. It's yeah, that's not nice. The whole James Cracknell story when he was hit in the head by a wing mirror and a lorry and brain injuries and changed his personality and all that sort of stuff. I just can't imagine it. And there's so many times people said to me that big things you're going to really, it's not going to be war zones that are going to cause you trouble. It's going to be traffic. It's going to be like the weather and all that sort of stuff. And they were right. Right. Yeah. So how do you do um, physically? This is a all strange places, all this logistics, all this mm. stuff. I mean, this will beat the crap out of out of the best <laughs> athlete. Now, how did you do physically yeah. during all this? I assume you were running with a broken elbow then after getting hit by a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Of course. Of yeah, course. There were, there, yeah. yeah, exactly. There was other <laughs> broken bones. I had 22 different accounts of uh, different bouts of food poisoning. I had kidney infections. I had a minor heart attack. I had I was peeing blood a lot of the time. And uh, let's say you go on holiday somewhere to a very hot and humid country. It's 40 odd degrees. Humidity percentages through the roof. It's hard just to stand outside for a while. You know, it's that plus the exhaustion of 100 plus countries, plus the fact that you're eating strange food, plus the fact that you then know you're 
dehydrated because you're not taking in enough because your fluids are going straight through, through you. The one specific occasion was in Bangladesh where I was peeing blood and uh, I was violently sick every mile of that marathon. And yeah. so you're right, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's, it's cliched, but that's all you just keep doing until it's done and then collapse on the bed and pack your bags and get to the next country. It was, uh, was, there, it was, it, it was brutal. It, was there any point where your support crew wanted to pull you? There was a couple of times that I had the question of, do you think you should carry on? And most of them weren't health related because I would try and get through the most of it before I tell them anything because I didn't want to have that added. You know, If, if you caught me a, on a time when I was particularly mentally low, I didn't want another couple of people or another 10 people saying to me, maybe you shouldn't carry on because that's, that doesn't right. help, right. you know? Right. Um, you're weak. You're weak at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're susceptible to saying, oh, go on then, I'll just give up. And so you try and avoid that at every possible angle. But I had a conversation with my dad who was, like I said, he was responsible for, for booking all of my flights and the travel to, not just flights, but overland transport, all sorts of stuff, travel to and from each country. And I had a driver that was due to take me into Syria from, where was I? Uh, I can't remember where I was. Anyway, I was supposed to be going overland, border crossing into Syria. and Which is my dad in called, the middle of a civil war at the time. Of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the middle of a civil war. And it was Beirut. And, and, and I was in Beirut going overland in the next couple of days. And there was lots of protests in Beirut at the time. And my dad called me and said, look, the driver that we'd had organized and had spent about nine months trying to work out for you to, to take you into Syria safely has been shot and killed. And mm. we have an option of not doing it and doing it another time, or we find somebody else that we think we might trust and try and get you in. And we ascertained over a course of many late night conversations that it was to do with a a number plate mix up with the car that he was supposed to be driving a different car. And because there was protests, there was basically rebels that were were, were shooting indiscriminately at, at different vehicles with Syrian plates. And he happened to, to get shot and killed. And it was incredibly alarming and shocking. And I was obviously very fatigued already. And they rather than say to me, you maybe you shouldn't, it was think about it and we'll back you with whatever your decision was, because what is the right decision, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but you're, you're you, coming from the ultra world. So you know that your yeah. crew can't be negative yeah. Nancy's, right? That That's where exactly. the crew challenge is. Yeah. yeah, unless there's a bone poking through the skin, I'm going to keep going. I, You're absolutely right. I knew that, and I think many of the team do. But when it's your parents, when it's family, when it's people that don't necessarily understand that mentality fully because they don't have that mentality, or B, they don't want to accept that mentality on your behalf. And so it's, I think none of them at any point during that trip were negative and were giving me an out easily ever. And I'm incredibly grateful for it because it could have been a whole different story if I had just a couple of people sending me the occasional message saying, maybe we've had a conversation and we don't think you should. That would have played on my mind a lot. Unfortunately, I, uh, very fortunately, I didn't have that. Right. Right. And because when you're low like that, you're very susceptible to, um, it's kind of like um, mind control, right? You're very susceptible yeah. to anybody telling you anything. Then then uh, you have to show up at some embassy someplace and shake hands and kiss babies and smile after with the food poisoning. And You're absolutely right. You're that must have been right. wonderful. I'm very glad you picked up on that because there's a lot of people I've spoken to in interviews or whatever. And the social aspects, you know, you read many, many adventure books. And I think 
the books that I've read anyway, I've, I've read a lot of adventure books and it's always the athlete or the adventurer being frustrated with the extracurricular stuff that they would enjoy and would definitely put on the I want to do this list. But in the moment, whether it be food poisoning or whether it be sheer exhaustion or whether it be not wanting to make small talk with somebody because you're just absolutely exhausted. And you're absolutely right. I've given talks to huge running clubs. I've visited schools. I've signed people's T-shirts and trainers. And I loved every minute of it. But I can tell you there was a lot of times when I just wanted to say, I can't do this. I need to go to sleep. And there were moments. I had a, a, a case in point in Cuba, actually. I had this lovely embassy that put on a, a brilliant jazz band at one of the, the embassy staff's homes. And they got these brilliant musicians in and put on this brilliant food and I, this was country number four, I think. Um, so I was quite close to the beginning of the trip. And I was really conscious of sticking to my plan of don't be overtired. Don't do things silly because you need to look after your body. I had um, Laura, my performance managers, in my mind saying just, be aware of how much time you're spending awake when you should be sleeping. And I just said to them halfway through the evening, look, it's very lovely, but I really need to go to sleep. And I think they were probably a little bit offended, but understood a little bit. But there was always that moment of you don't want to offend people, but you do still need to put plan A at the forefront of what you're doing. Yeah, because it's, yeah, it's too easy to have another rum drink and cigar yeah. and then show up and it just all stacks up over and over again. Exactly. That's you it. can't yeah. never dig out of that hole. So no. when I talk to people about these kind of adventures, right, these, um, you know, whether it's run across the country in Britain or in the U.S. or any of these sort of things, there tends mm. to be an emotional arc to it mm. where when they start, it's all like uh, unicorns and, and rainbows. Mm. <laughs> and then somewhere <laughs> a third of the way in, it gets really, really dark and you start having injuries and that sort of thing. Then you sort of climb out of that back towards the end, it gets triumphant again. What was your emotional arc in this? That's very good observations. And I think I agree that there's an arc. I think my arc took two forms. So like a bell curve, but two bell curves upside down on one another, like two uh, horseshoes. But that's that's called a, that's a, called in statistics, that's called a bimodal distribution. There. Yes, exactly. Now, now exactly. you have the word for it. I have exactly bimodal. And I, I did know that, believe it or not. And uh, what I'm trying to say is there's two narratives of that arc. Yeah, it's because you so, were out there for so long. Yeah. And at the beginning, you have the excitement, you have the nerves, you have the anticipation, you have the you know two years of planning and getting to the start line. And then you initially suffer because your legs aren't in the rhythm. You're trying to keep up on, on top of everything. I was filming for the documentary. I was trying to write my notes. I was trying to be social. I was trying to remember phone numbers. I was trying to do the Guinness World Record logbook. I was juggling everything. And then before long, you get into the patterns and you settle into your rhythm and it becomes easier and easier and easier. And then as it gets towards the end, it gets harder because you're getting nervous because it's more pressure especially for us we were so heavily invested in every way especially financially and we thought well we don't want things to go so terribly wrong that we can't reach the finish line now and so there was definite emotional tail off towards the end because I was just relieved to have finished and then obviously the elation comes back once you're over the line but the other side of the coin is that the bit in the middle that was easy that's when you're not experiencing the extreme emotions as often and therefore it's not potentially as vivid. So the beginning and at the end, they're some of my most vivid memories because they were so stressful or so happy or the extreme emotions. But right. in the middle, right. you get less of that. So that's what I mean about the two right. different types of arc. Right, because you get into the flow and it's just sort of routine. 
as even yeah. as bizarre as it was what you were doing, it becomes routine. It's amazing Absolutely. how the human body and mind can just adapt to these sort of journeys. It's, isn't it's it? fun. It's absolutely fantastic. And the amount of times I've done challenges and I did, I ran countries and all sorts of stuff. And obviously we're running Italy now, prime example. You're running, I've recently been running double marathons and obviously marathons every day for the past few months. And it is phenomenal how at the beginning, you know, I've ran several hundred marathons, 800 marathons odd now. And every time you get into one of these trips, it's always a little bit tougher over the first, I say 10 days, I mean, five to 10 days, and then you slowly get into your rhythm. But every time it gives you an extra little stepping stone to go, you know what, I've done that. And I've done that another time. I've done that the sixth time now. I've done that seventh time now. I know I can do it. And it gets easier. And your emotional, maybe not physically, but your mental side of it kicks into gear and you get into that rhythm a little bit earlier every time. Yeah. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. Your body figures out the ramp too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. True. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to your sleeping in the van in the thunderstorm <laughs> with your girlfriend and your dog <laughs> yeah. and, you. uh, and running almost to Sicily. So that's good. You're going to run all the way out to the end of the boot, all the way out to the end of yes. Sicily? Yeah. So we're literally just a few days from the end of the boots. And then we've got a ferry booked on the 14th to go over to Sicily a couple of days earlier than we were planning because we've caught up on some decent mileage and then uh, yeah, have Christmas in Sicily and then back up to the mountains for Christmas. So yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on. I'm very, very grateful. And, and thank you for chatting. And hopefully people will we will buy the books, read about the story and uh, and hopefully be inspired to go and do something even crazier. Sure. Any uh, specific links, easy links that people can get to to find uh, the stuff? Easy, easy, easy link is just my name, I suppose. Nick Butter, and the book is called Running the World. It's on Amazon, on Waterstones. It's going to be in Barnes and Noble in the US in January, I think. But it's on it's on Amazon everywhere, so you should be able to get it. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of your uh, trip. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Season 1, Episode 5, Killer. Her name was Janet Kramer, but her co-workers called her KJ. She didn't know why. She supposed it didn't matter anymore. The lines on the road flashed by, and she started to fade from consciousness again, caught herself and focused. Who was she now? In this new landscape of chaos and death, KJ. She mused as a big five-liter V8 purred down the abandoned highway. That was the devious beauty of a perfect nickname, when the recipient of the nickname didn't know, but suspected there was something else going on. Some subtle dig, some backhanded comment about her personality that the perpetrators could deny. As far as she could tell, the K stood for killer, but she hadn't figured out the J just yet. She had her suspicions. That's the way it was. Her initials were JK, but she had become known as KJ at her firm. It was just part of the gauntlet she had to run every day. 
The talking heads liked to opine about how empowered professional women were, how they were leaders in these modern, enlightened times. Indeed, the partners in her firm had trotted her out as an example every time the subject came up, but the old biases were still there, like a river that had been forced underground, lurking under the surface like a pent-up geyser. The male partners and associates were jealous of her abilities, and she had to be twice as good. The jealousy was probably worse now that it was against the rules to overtly attack her. It had no way to express itself, no way to vent. Instead, they played their petty games and had fun with their subtle jabs, the snide remarks, and now the nickname were a covert way to push back. They couldn't beat her in the open, so they hid in the bushes and threw mud, so to speak. She smiled a bit at that visual, her perfect white canine teeth emerging from hard, thin lips in the mirror, just for a moment before she caught herself. Little men, cowering in bushes, throwing mud, like little spiteful gremlins. She liked that image. She wasn't one to just smile and accept it. Her rivals had learned that, but she still had to be careful which hills she chose to die on. She preferred to set the agendas, drive the cases, and make things happen, not respond to petty jabs from petty boys whose feelings had been hurt or who felt threatened. Those pricks. The jerks in her office. Hard-charging guys with nice suits and bad habits. She smiled slightly again. They're probably all dead now. And she wasn't. She wasn't dead. But what now? She had gotten sick like everyone else. For days she languished in her apartment, but she didn't give in. She forced herself to eat and drink, to stay alive. After a while she knew she would survive. She always did. She had a view of the city from their penthouse. She could see the destruction. Fires, smoke, wrecks, bodies. It got worse as her sick days dragged, but still a few things still moved. When she had recovered enough to drag herself out of her building, it was all chaos. There were cars smashed in the road like some farcical demolition derby. Half the city was on fire. There were gunshots and shouting. But strangely... No sirens. Worst of all, there were dead and dying everywhere. It was like some medieval nightmare, some old painting of the Inquisition with demons pulling on the flesh from the screaming penitent. She knew she had to get out of the city. Her family was gone. She couldn't change that. Winners don't cry. They take control and make things happen. So she pulled herself into a red Land Rover and headed out of town. She would get out of the city and head south. She was from the south. That was another thing that made those boys mad, with their clipped Eastern Standard accents bred from those years of lacrosse and liberal arts at places like Andover and Groton. The prep boys heard a twinge of Southern in your voice and assumed you were soft as a morning biscuit. She quickly taught them differently. She used their biases against them. 
She smiled her polite debutante smile as they impaled themselves on their own cultural absurdities. They never learned. It was a harrowing drive out of the city. There were wrecked cars off the road, cars burning or just abandoned randomly in the road. There were people, dead and almost dead. At first, she had tried to avoid the corpses in the road. Eventually, she came to see them as inconveniences. She still slowed down and did her best to drive around, but when all else failed, the Range Rover had the clearance to go over and through the dead. There were still bodies moving. Some tried to get her to stop. She had pressed the accelerator hard and grimaced as a shambling survivor tried to flag her down. What were they thinking? How was she supposed to help anyone? She could barely stay upright herself. Screw them anyhow. They could fend for themselves like she did. She didn't have the time, the energy, and certainly not the empathy to get caught up in some other a-hole's problems. When she eased onto the interstate and things looked relatively clear, Janet took a deep breath of the leather-smelling air and reached for her bottle of water. She took a long swig and swallowed. She choked a bit and coughed hard into a napkin. The napkin revealed a dark green phlegm tinged with dried blood. She swallowed hard to clear her throat. It was still a bit raw. Her lungs were rattled when she breathed, but it was getting better. She tossed the napkin to the passenger side floor. It was an orange-brown color with dancing skeletons on it. Leftover from Halloween. Ironic. Jeez, this world with its constant ironies. With the kids, she made a habit of hoarding napkins in a the car. They were always spilling something. These napkins were from the high-end coffee shop she patronized with the kids on weekends, while she gave her husband Jim a break. Friends would joke that they were like a divorced couple, and she got the kids on the weekends. The thought of her family brought a wave of melancholy so deep that she almost lost control. She had to jerk the wheel to stay on the road. She had been at it for hours now, and it was starting to get dark. She was weak and tired and knew she would have to take a rest eventually. More irony, she thought. Janet Kramer, the woman who never rested. With every mile she put between herself and the death behind her, she also felt a sense of freedom. A sense of freedom that made her feel stronger, but also pulled out a strand of guilt and sadness for what she had lost. And, just a little bit, for what she had never had. She pressed on down the road until the Land Rover started to run low on gas. Crud! She'd have to find some gas. A diesel, actually. She knew the gas stations were probably a bad idea. She thought she remembered that most stations had run out of gas quickly when people started dying. Something about that on the news before the TV went out. Something about the pumps not having power to work when the grid came down. She was busy at the time, trying to keep her husband and kids alive as they coughed and choked to death in her arms. She tried. God, she tried. But what could she do? She tried to get them to drink soup and put cold, wet towels on their forehead. She cleaned them up. She made frantic calls for help until the network failed. Janet Kramer, 
the best damn lawyer in the business. Unbeatable. The killer. She could make most things bend to her will, but she couldn't pull her own family out of the jaws of this horror. She watched them die, helpless to change it. She wasn't a doctor. She was the one who took down doctors, the male practice specialist. She went after those corporate jerk-offs who made bad decisions and hurt people. She brought them down to earth. She hurt them. The irony again. Where were those doctors now? Where were those medical corporations with their grand plans to change the world? Those devious plans that always promised a grand future while harvesting money through wrongful death in the present. This new bug had done more to cut them down than she ever could. When the bug finally got her, it ravaged through her body like an express train. Fever. Chills that shook her whole body and made her bones ache, throwing up blood, coughing so hard she thought her insides would just fall out of her throat. It got to a point where a lesser person, without her strength, would wish for death just to get away from it. And most did. But she didn't. Why? She cried out plaintively and pounded the steering wheel once with her open palm. Probably because she was tough. Tough and strong. She was one of the strongest people she knew. She worked hard, long days at the practice, but she was also an athlete. She had stayed in shape. She was strong and hard and tough. And that might be why she is still here, pushing this British-made car down the road. The gaslight on the dash was on now. She needed to find fuel. She eased off an exit that promised a shopping district. It was quiet here. She didn't see any other cars moving. It was eerie. She eased through the stoplights that no longer worked, but swung above the road like silent gatekeepers and made her way towards the big box stores. She'd need to siphon. She remembered how to do it from her childhood in rural South Carolina. She needed a gas can, maybe more than one. She needed to length the hose. Then she had to find some vehicles without the anti-theft devices and siphon some diesel. She had a bad feeling about this. In her weakened state, she was worried about leaving the car but she'd have to do it if she wanted to keep going. She pulled into the superstore parking lot and circled around back to the loading docks. No sense in letting someone see her. She knew this could be the point where, even with all of her strength and skill, she might not be able to control the outcome if someone was there. With some reservation, she parked the car behind the dumpster, manually locking the doors. She resisted using the key fob lock because it would make some beeping noise. She pocketed the fob and started her approach to the store. Into the unknown. Into something she couldn't control. But then, like clockwork, a switch flipped in her mind the way it always did when something hard needed to be done. What's living without risk? Janet Kramer, known to some as K.J., reminded herself. She steeled herself, straightened up, and headed in.
Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run a marathon in every country on every grain of sand in the world through the end of episode 446 of the Run Run Live podcast. You think we'll live long enough to see folks run marathons on other worlds? That would be cool, wouldn't it? Have a marathon on, like, Mars? Think about that. So anyhow, that last section there, that's my new Apocalypse podcast. So it's called After the Apocalypse. Go find it by searching for After the Apocalypse on iTunes or whatever your podcast favorite app is. And this one costs me a little bit of real money to make, so I need to drive the download numbers. If Even if you hate it and want to have nothing to do with it, go out and subscribe to it just as a favor for me and download it. And if you want to help, you know, you can like it and write a review and send it to a couple of friends. So I'm enjoying the creative process. We'll see. We'll see how long I survive. But with that, since we are here in a new year, let's have some thoughts on 2020. I hear a lot of people saying, you know, you got to slam the door on 2020. It was a bad year. And, you know, I'm not so sure there's such a thing as a bad year, right? Labeling anything good or bad, I mean, that's just a way to justify our own response to it. And that's the interesting thing about it, because our response is the only thing we can really control. When we say 2020 was a bad year, what we're really saying is 2020 was a year in which our response to external events was bad. So what would change if instead of labeling good or bad, we just took things for what they were? 2020 wasn't good, wasn't bad. It just was. Now, 2020 was certainly different. It caused an abrupt cessation or change to many of our longstanding routines and habits. And I would wager that with every routine lost, the seed of a new routine was planted. People stopped driving to work. That routine was lost. Maybe it was replaced with going for a walk before work in the morning with the dog or even the spouse. Was that a good change or a bad change? Hmm. I mean, surely there's some bad things, right? We lost people to the virus. Uh, We lost jobs. But are we not the type of animals that respond to challenges and change? Doesn't this type of abrupt structural change cause us to look deeply inwards and ask better questions? I mean, one thing became clear to me in 2020. There are an infinite number of things that are out of my control. (laughs) And if I let those things bother me or control me or chew up my valuable time, then I'm a chump. You might argue that I'm a chump anyhow, but that's beside the point. There are things that are squarely in my control, where I spend my precious energy and time is under my control. Somewhat, I'm still boxed in on many fronts by the decisions that I've made along the way, but that doesn't mean I have to acquiesce. That just means I have to choose to. You know, call it sunk cost or pain avoidance, but there's certain things I'm locked into, and I choose to be locked into. And a big, big, big thing that is under my control is how I show up. So everything in life rewards you disproportionately for how you show up. To quote a famous fantasy novel, we reap what we sow. 
And this is typically applied to the actions of individuals, right? You say you reap what you sow. But I think it also applies to how we show up. If we show up with hate and anger, then we're going to reap hate and anger. If we show up with fear and hesitancy, then we're going to reap suspicion and distrust. If we show up with disinterest and torpor, we're going to be shown the door. But, my friends, that is totally under your control. If we show up with energy and positivity and a belief in the future and a story about a better place, then we are going to reap the enthusiasm and trust of everyone we meet. And with that, we bid goodbye to 2020. 2020 was a game-changing year. 2020 enabled me to spend time at home with my new dog and my older wife. (laughs) 2020 gave me space to explore the trails every day. And 2020 allowed me to inject some new creativity into my life. 2020 brought perspective to where I am and where I'm going. And 2020 reminded me of the things that I'm grateful for. In 2020, it started in January with me taking on the challenge of a new job. And I feel quite blessed looking back that I was able to be part of an organization and help navigate these uncharted waters. That, I think, was a serendipitous use of my experience and mindset. And in 2021, I vow to set new goals in all the important areas of my life, to plan and execute to the best of my abilities, but most of all, to show up, to bring my best self to every day. And with that, my friends, I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Chris, I can't stop yawning.